This is Power Players with Dan Clark. This is a podcast interview with the courageous Elizabeth Smart. Welcome to Power Players with Dan Clark, former athlete, Hall of Fame speaker, New York Times bestselling author and high performance coach, where each week I bring you an inspiring message from an extraordinary human being who will share their secrets on how you can tap into your personal power to become everything you were born to be. Thanks for spending some time with me today. In this episode, Elizabeth Smart, who made international news when she was kidnapped as a 14-year-old little girl and held for nine months until she was rescued, shares her incredible story of resiliency, giving us an inside glimpse of why and how she was able to positively deal with this horrific nightmare and become a stronger, more amazing human being as a result of it. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me on this program, and it really is an honor and a privilege. You're a hero to so many people. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So, Elizabeth, let's just take it back. For those listeners who aren't familiar with your story, can you give us the synopsis of exactly what happened and take us right up to the point where you were rescued, and then we'll take it from there to illuminate this amazing life of forgiveness and resiliency that you epitomize? Sure. So, I was just kind of your average everyday girl. Um, I was about to graduate from junior high. And the night before I graduated, I woke up to a man standing above me, holding a knife at my neck, telling me to get up and go with him. I did not feel like there was any option but to do what he said. And none of the safety that I'd been taught in school about, you know, don't talk to strangers, don't take candy from people you don't know, all that kind of stuff, none of it applied to this situation. So I really, I really felt like I didn't have an option. I remember I did exactly as he said, because more than anything, I, I didn't know what he had already done inside my house. I didn't know if he had killed my parents. I didn't know if he'd killed my brothers, but I did know that my younger sister was still asleep in bed next to me. And I did not want him to hurt her. I did not want him to take her. So I went with him. And he led me up into the mountains, just over three miles behind my home, behind the home I grew up in. And there he chained me up and raped me and abused me. And um, it went on like that for about five months. And then he took me to Southern California. And I guess I should mention it wasn't just him. It was his wife as well. She was part of it. And they took me to Southern California where they held me captive for four more months um, during which, I mean, more abuse happened, more rapes happened. um, And eventually I was able to convince them that we should all return back to Utah. That in and of itself, honestly, is, is a miracle because they had every reason to never return to Utah. But, um, I, I was able to convince them to return. And so we ended up coming back to Utah. We ended up hitchhiking back to Utah, which when I suggested that idea, I thought it would be a really good idea because hopefully it would put us in close contact with a lot of people. And surely one of these individuals would realize that there was something wrong, that there was something, um, there's just something off about the situation. And hopefully they'd be able to help me, which I, I hope would lead to my rescue. Um, My rescue did not come through the hitchhiking, 
but it did come on that journey back to Salt Lake. Actually, at the very end of that journey, we we made it up to Salt Lake. Um, we were on State Street, which I mean, if you live in Salt Lake or have been to Salt Lake, you know it's a pretty large street and basically runs from one end of the valley to the other. And um, we were we were still a ways out from downtown Salt Lake. We were on about 106 South when all of a sudden a police car pulled up and another police car and another police car. And pretty soon it felt like we were surrounded by police cars and officers were jumping out and they ran up and they started asking questions. And initially, and truthfully, I didn't immediately tell them who I was. I mean, I'd lived in fear for such a long time. It wasn't, it was, it was terrifying to, to speak, terrifying to say something that my captors um, would hear and be upset with me because they had gotten away with so much for so long. It just didn't seem like anyone could protect me from them. And so I certainly didn't want to endanger myself and I didn't want to endanger my family. I mean, they told me over the last nine months that if I ever did anything or said anything, they didn't want me to do or say that they'd kill me. And if they didn't kill me, they'd kill my family. So it was um, paramount to me that not only I protect myself, but I protect my family as well. So I didn't initially tell them that I was Elizabeth Smart. And it wasn't until uh, one of the police officers pulled me aside, separated me away from my captor and said, you know, there's a girl, she's been missing now for a very long time and her family love her more than anything in this world. They want her to come home. They've never stopped looking for her. They've never stopped you know, searching for her and, and they just wanted her to come home. And it was really only then that I was able to admit who I was and that ultimately led to my reunion with my family. So amazing, you know, and our family was so much a part of the, uh, of the search and the prayers and <clears throat> the yearning for you to be found alive and, and safe. So, in what mental and emotional state were you in, <clears throat> excuse me, when you finally were confident enough to trust the police officers and society that if you came clean and said, this is who I am, that you would remain safe? In what mental state were you in that, in that frightened paranoia that you just described? And then what steps did you go through to become okay again okay in in parentheses um and become so strong afterwards take us through that transitional period of of finally feeling safe again and being able to to heal um honestly i remained in that state of fear even after i had been separated from my captors and it wasn't until i saw my dad uh, for the first time that I believed I was safe because I didn't, I didn't know really. I mean, looking back on it, it's easy to think, well, of course the police officers would have protected you, but just nobody had for so long. I just didn't know if, if anyone could. And then when I saw my dad and I was reunited with my dad, uh, that was when I I knew that it was going to be okay. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what lay ahead, but I just knew that he would protect me no matter what. And um, that was the beginning. And um, certainly my mom has been such a 
huge, huge influence uh, in my life. Um, she, I mean, from as far back as I can remember, she always was the one that was helping me to pick myself up and dust myself off and go out and try again. Uh, that was, I mean, that was honestly the way she raised me even prior to, to, to my kidnapping. And it didn't change when I got home. I mean, yes, there were certainly things that were different. There were whole new levels of, of trauma and hurt and pain that we had to work our way through. But at the end of the day, I mean, my mom just stayed consistent with the way that she had always raised me. And ultimately, that's what I needed. I needed consistency and I needed love and I needed trust and I needed the ability to make my own decisions and, and learn and grow from them. And I needed a safe environment to do that in. And that's what both my parents provided and gave to me. So that's what prepared you to stay strong <clears throat> and creative and, and courageous through this whole this whole nine-month ordeal. Do you have any specific advice for parents? You're the proud mother of three beautiful children, as we know. <laughs> and obviously, you've had plenty of time to reflect back on those survival techniques, those specific tools and tactics, if you will, techniques that allowed you to survive one day at a time. Teach us about that. If you can reflect back on what you think the three or four things that allowed you to wake up every day in captivity and still believe that you were going to be okay. Well, the very first one to start with was knowing that my parents loved me unconditionally. I think that's the greatest gift any parent can give their child is to not just tell them that I love you, but really help instill in them and let that child know that you do love them unconditionally, that there isn't anything that they could do that would make you stop loving them. For me, that was ultimately what, what made the thought of surviving worthwhile, uh, knowing that, that they would love me, that they would want me back no matter what. Um, my, I mean, I, I didn't know if anybody else would, but for me, knowing that they would love me, that they would want me back, that was enough, and that is what helped me survive. Um, I mean, I also, I have a very deep faith in God. That was a huge source of comfort, a huge source of, of help to me while I was gone, and it was so much more comforting to believe that there was an all-knowing, all-powerful, kind, and loving Heavenly Father watching over me than a cruel God who, who didn't care because that meant if, if it was a cruel God, that meant that I really was truly alone. But the thought that God was kind and loving and he is our heavenly father, that made me feel like I could keep going because I wasn't alone because he understood what I was going through and that whatever happened, you know, whether I lived or died, it would be okay because I was in his care. So that was very important to me as well. You know, um, so regardless if you were raped, regardless if you were humiliated, regardless if you were physically beaten, you know, you were shackled with a, with a metal cable, as I read in your book, that kept you, that gave you some, some sort of mobility, but you were shackled to a tree, shackled to something that did not allow you to escape. Regardless of what happened to you, Elizabeth, why did you still feel okay and beautiful and not 
like damaged goods. You recovered. You were resilient. You came out of that spotless as this daughter of God, as you would say. Talk to us a little bit about that, that you still knew your parents loved you unconditionally and that regardless of how much you were you were beat up physically, emotionally, somehow you survived and didn't just survive, you thrived to recover as this amazing young woman today. I don't know how beautiful I felt in all in all truthfulness. Um, I don't know. I mean, I didn't know what to expect coming back. Um, initially, I was I was extremely overwhelmed with all of a sudden everyone knew my name, everyone recognized my face, and you know everyone would come up to me and hug me and say how they prayed for me. And on one hand, um, that was so kind and and sweet of them to come back to. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, I grew up being a very shy girl, uh, and all his attention, it was it was overwhelming. But then, and then there was, of course, this other side of me that that thought, wait, if people really knew what happened, would they still want to hug me? Would they still, you know, want to tell me that they loved me, that they prayed for me, or or would they change their mind? And actually. I remember one night, it must have only been a couple nights after I had gotten home, uh, we were sitting in my parents' bedroom and we were watching the news and I I just remember the screen going black and then it was neon writing coming across the screen and it it was like a message directly to me saying, well, no, it wasn't directly to me because initially it began by saying Elizabeth Smart is not pregnant and I was just like, oh my gosh. What's going on? But then, but then it followed, and it just said something like, "Elizabeth, you're beautiful. We love you. Um, Like, stay strong." And uh, from the first part of that message, saying Elizabeth Smart is not pregnant, um, that helped me realize that actually. What had happened as far as me being raped wasn't a secret. I mean, whether people had verbal confirmation from me about it or not, people just automatically jumped to that conclusion that if I was kidnapped and if I came back alive nine months later, I would have been raped while I was gone. And yet here was this message saying that I was still lovable, that I was still beautiful, that I was still worthwhile. And and that meant something to me. And then as I went on and I began to uh, experience more of life and as I met other survivors, I came to a knowledge for myself that it, it doesn't matter what other people do to you. They can never take away your value as a human being. And I met survivor after survivor after survivor and our stories were so similar in that we'd all experienced some form of sexual abuse or sexual trauma. And I saw how actually lucky I was because a lot of these individuals who suffered this extreme trauma and abuse, they suffered it at the hands of of someone that knew them. I mean, whether it was a parent or a friend or a family member or someone that they trusted, And I realized how lucky I was in that I was abused by a complete stranger. I never had that degree of betrayal 
that so many uh, victims out there have. And that just made me, I don't know, I think that lit a fire in me and made me feel, I don't know if compelled the right word, but made me feel like I had this purpose and that I, I wanted to speak out and help each one of these victims and survivors know that just because some person hurt them, some person raped them or assaulted them or sexually abused them, I wanted them to know that it didn't change who they were who they are. It doesn't change the value that they innately possess inside them. I wanted them to, to know that and to embrace that and to know that they deserve every happiness in this life, that they deserve to, to find joy and to find peace and to be loved. And they shouldn't be ashamed of, of what happened to them. And that actually, by talking about what happened to them, by whether it's you know, publicly or not publicly, um, that's educating people around them. And education is a powerful tool. As we share our story, as we raise awareness, a lot of times that awareness leads to outrage and outrage is what often leads to change. And we, we need those change. I mean, we're witnessing that right now. Uh, currently in, I believe I read that it's the world's largest civil rights movement going on right this, right this very minute. And if, you know, this story, if the stories that have happened hadn't have been shared, we wouldn't be in the situation that we are in right now. So sharing your story, open yourself up to that vulnerability, that is strength and that is power and that is what ultimately makes change. I love it. So eloquent. So connect the dots between, so you, you, you were rescued, you were rescued at about age 15. Then did you go back to high school? Take, take us from, from the transition years just quickly through deciding that uh, service before self was a great healing tool. You decided to serve a mission for your God. And then you came back and you actually understood Elizabeth that you could love again and that you could be loved and then you fell in love with the man of your dreams consolidate that time period so we can so we can get that into the story well the next decade of my life um <laughs> yeah I I went back to high school I mean I while I was in high school I had a high school boyfriend. Um, I, I had friends. I, I'd say for the most part, my high school experience was probably pretty average. Nothing too extraordinary happened during high school. Uh, one of the things that did absolutely impact my life happened just the morning after I was rescued when my mom told me, she said, Elizabeth, what's happened to you is terrible and there aren't words to describe how how wicked these two people are. Um, you know, they've stolen nine months of your life from you that you will never get back. But the best punishment you could ever give them is to be happy, is to live your life, do all the things that you want to do because by feeling sorry for yourself, by reliving the past, by holding on to it, that's only allowing them to steal more of your life away from you. And they don't deserve that. They don't deserve a single second more. And for me, that was good advice. That was, that was great advice. Um, but I also feel like I, I need to say that, you know, each one of us have a different path 
for healing. And there's no comparing one person's story to another. There's no comparing one person's pain to another. You know, we all have to find our individual path. And what worked for me may not work for anybody else. And and going back to my mom's advice, I don't think that she meant that I'd never be sad or frustrated or feel pain. I think she absolutely knew that I would. I think she just ultimately remember, wanted me to remember that happiness exists and that even if I don't feel it, I should believe in it. And that's what I should want for myself. And that's what I should want in my life and to hold on to that until I eventually have it. And that advice served me well, has continued to serve me well, um, because I, I, I do want to have the best life I can have. I want my life to be meaningful. I, I want to I want to be the kind of person that I can be proud of. I want to be the kind of person who is a good person, who is a kind person, who's working to make a difference, working to make the world a better place. Um, that is the kind of person I want to be. And so going back to high school, I mean, I, you know, I was anxious and excited to get my driver's license. I was anxious and excited to um, go to high school prom. I was excited to well, just go to high school. Um, I was excited to be done with high school. I was excited to go on to college. Um, I, I studied music. I studied specifically heart performance. And during that time period, I also decided to serve a, a, a Mormon mission. Um, and I went to France and I just felt like for me, my faith had played such a part in, in helping me to survive. It had helped me so much that I thought if it can help someone else, then I would like to share that with them. And so I, I did do that. And when I finished, I had actually met another missionary while I was out. He was this handsome, handsome man from Scotland. Wow. And <laughs> we actually wrote letters, like full-blown handwritten letters, envelopes, posted stamps, everything. And wow. we wrote to each other while while he finished. He had six months after six months more after I finished. And then when he he finished, he invited me to come out to Scotland. And I went. I went uh, to Scotland. Yeah. And um well, as they say, the rest is history. So that is with three beautiful, beautiful children. <clears throat> so let's quickly shift gears as we wind down our time. So you wrote your amazing book. I've read the New York Times bestseller, My Story, which was about being held in captivity as a teenager, obviously, and how, how you managed to survive with the powerful uh, message for all of us of what it takes to, to, to do that. And then you followed it up. You followed your book up, My Story, with Where There's Hope. And that's an amazing book that takes uh, us into the, the depths of your soul to explain to us how, do you, how you overcame trauma, how you found strength to move on, and how you reclaimed your life. Teach us about, uh, you know, maybe one or two. Take us back to one or two character traits that you believe that survivors have, especially for women that they can incorporate into their lives? Well, 
I mean, just thinking about that whole experience of writing the book, I mean, it was a journey for myself. I mean, I don't know. There's some pretty amazing people out there. So I'm sure there are some people out there who could just like whip a book out, no problem. But for me, I am not one of those people. It takes a lot, a lot of time and effort. And on this journey of writing where there's hope, um, kind of one of the things that stands out to me as you asked me that question about what survivors and specifically women have, what pops to mind is the interview that I had with Diane von Furstenberg. And she said, she said that I have never met a woman who isn't strong. She simply doesn't exist. And initially when I just kind of took that right off the bat, I was just like, well, like, I don't know, like maybe there's some not so strong women out there. I mean, I like I've met a few complainers in my life, but as I have since, spent time thinking and pondering that I actually do think she's right because life isn't easy it's not easy for anyone and I mean just just being a parent myself having three children myself I mean I'm married I'm not by myself but just being a parent just being a mother is the hardest thing that I have ever done and there are so many women who who experienced that. Um, and I, I, through this experience of parenthood, I would have to, ex- I would have to agree with Diane von Furstenberg that there isn't a woman who, who isn't strong. Every woman is strong. Weak women don't exist. And I think that's, that's true for survivors. Um, there's no such thing as a weak survivor. Uh, they simply just don't exist. And when I say survivor, I, I don't even mean all the ones who are still breathing, because unfortunately, there are many who, who don't. Mm-hmm. They don't make it to the other end, but that does not make them weak. I mean, just to even begin to experience something so horrendous as being raped, as being kidnapped, as being as being murdered, or the... Um, the moments leading up to to murder, you you are not weak. You do not go through something like that. You do not experience something like that and are weak. None of us are weak. We are all strong. We're all stronger than we think we are. And I like personally, I just wish that each one of us could see how strong we really are. I think that that would, I think that that would help us so much. I think that would help us all realize how powerful that we each are and how much of a difference each one of us really and truly can make. You know, you remind me of a couple of my favorite quotes. Pain is a signal to grow, not to suffer. Once we learn the lesson, the pain is teaching us, the pain goes away. So in life, there's no mistakes, only lessons. And you also remind me about the significance of this podcast that we've put together that we do call power players because what we're trying to do what i'm doing my best at elizabeth is finding extraordinary human beings like you who understand the significance of passion you've identified your passion so your why is bigger than your why not and it's obvious that you continuously prepare yourself to be a better mother to be a better spouse to be a better friend to be a better advocate a better speaker 
But one of the things that that stands out as far as every power player that I've had a chance to interview, and you are at the top of the list, is that you continuously pursue your passion um, to make a difference. And that brings me to our final discussion, I think, that I, I everybody wants to know about is the Elizabeth Smart Foundation. And as I looked it up online, basically the bullet point title says prevention resources for victims and their families, hope for families, peace for victims, empowerment for all, smart defense, smart talks, get involved, help resources. Tell, take a minute to just explain a little bit about your foundation. And then most importantly, Elizabeth, how everyone within the sound of our voices can get involved and support your amazing mission. Yeah. So, um, I mean, you read what our purpose is. We want to educate, we want to empower, we want to provide hope to victims and survivors. Um, education, I think, is one of the major keys to prevention. If we can prevent these crimes from happening, if we can prevent this kind of abuse from happening, then we absolutely should. So we have a couple of programs um, that, I mean, really focus on prevention and education. One of them is actually our podcast called Smart Talks. And um, I have a co-host and she and I, we've been able to interview just incredible people. We've been able to interview a lot of survivors. We've been able to interview advocates. We've been able to interview different agencies and talk about some of the services that they provide to victims. Um, for instance, we were able to interview uh, the Rape Recovery Center. They've been in Utah for over 40 years. They not only speak English, but they also work in Spanish. Um, they are willing to talk to anyone who calls in, regardless of whether they're in Utah or out of state. Um, they w are willing to try to help you connect with resources that are closer to you. Um, they were they were incredible. They're amazing. We've also been able to interview a number of different therapists because kind of what I was talking about uh, earlier about how no two paths to healing are the same. I mean, that, honestly, there are as many different kinds of therapy out there as there are people. There are as many different kinds of paths to healing as there are people. So I feel like actually my understanding of different kinds of therapy has grown so much and I hope it continues to grow. There's, you know, equine therapy, there's art therapy, there's EMDR, there's I, I mean, like, I can't even, I couldn't even name them all for you. There's, there's so many. And I feel like, at least for me growing up, uh, when I heard the word therapy, I just thought, oh, it's going to be like a little, a little leather settee in someone's <laughs> office. And you just lie there and you just talk about the worst moments of your life. Well, that sounds awful. <laughs> I don't want to do that. But actually there's so much more to it uh, than, than just sitting on someone's leather settee. And if you try a therapy and it doesn't work for you, go try a different one. Find the right therapist, find the right type of therapy. So that's been, I mean, extremely educational for me. And, I was it sounds, able to and it sounds like what you've taught us is that all therapies, regardless of the difference in the, in the way that they do it, the methodology, it still allows you, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but what I got out of what you've been teaching us is that you never know how strong you are until being strong is your only choice. And so these therapists or these people who are engaged to help us become 
you know, to heal and become better. It doesn't matter the path, the result is the same. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these therapists are there, are there to help you. They're, they are not going to fix it for you. You have to fix it for yourself, but they are there to help you, to be your support, to be sort of that uh, mentor or coach that's just on the sidelines, helping you to work through whatever it is that you're you're struggling with. But ultimately, you do the work yourself. And yeah, um, there are so many different options out there for you. So if one doesn't work, try a different one. So when you're talking about prevention, rumor has it that I don't know if you're teaching karate or whatever, you're teaching, <laughs> yeah. but we're talking about self-defense. <laughs> is your foundation focused on that part of prevention as well? Yes. Rumor has it is right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes, yeah, so we do have our program. It's called Smart Defense. Um, I I would love to say we are at 100% capacity right at this moment, but with COVID-19 being here and doesn't really look to be going away, we are trying to find new ways of getting this information out there. And I also think self-defense, um, I mean, ours is a number of different skills that are being taught. I mean, it's not just jujitsu. It's not just Muay Thai. I mean, it's, it's a number of things coming together. Um, but the important thing about it is that you can never just go through, I mean, whether it's smart defense or any other self-defense program out there, and there are some great ones out there. You can't just go through the program once and be like, that's it. That's me. Like I'm done. Like I'm prepared. I'm, I'm a lethal weapon now. No, this is the beginning point. This is the beginning point. It's something that you, you need to think about. You need to practice. I mean, it's like anything. You know, since I had kids, um, playing the harp has almost come to a standstill. Well, until recently. And then recently I uncovered my harp because every time it was uncovered in the past, my kids thought it was like the best jungle gym in the world. And I was like, don't stand on it. Stop climbing on it. So it's that covered forever. And I recently started to uncover it and I tried to go back and play some of the pieces that I had played in college. And honestly, I could not make it through the first line. Well, self-defense is the same way. This is something that needs to be ongoing. It needs to be something that you're practicing. You can't just take it once and think you're covered for the rest of your life. You need to think about it. You need to practice it. So we, we do have our self-defense course. Uh, we are developing and working on developing some other tools that will be useful for, for those who either can't attend in-class, um, in-person classes or who have finished the classes but want to still remain active, want to continue to practice it. We are working on developing um, some more tools so that it does become part of uh, daily mentality, daily practices. And so that's been I mean, it's been amazing. It's been stretching for me personally. It stretches me, uh, stretches yeah. my my mental capacity. <laughs> yeah. um, it's been it's been great. It's been a really good um, experience, and I I'm looking forward to. Well, you know, we might have to create a new normal with COVID nineteen, but I I still hope that one day we'll be able to gather together and and practice in class, in person. So I'm looking forward to that time as well. So how do we get involved with your foundation? <clears throat> how do we join your tribe and listen to your podcast and uh, 
Yes, so please subscribe to our podcast with with almost every episode. You know, at the end, we'll we'll just give a brief recap of what we've discussed and and hopefully what you can do or how you can get involved. Um, so definitely stay up to date with our podcast. Subscribe to us. Uh, we're on social media. Um, in the next few months, I hope everyone can stay tuned and follow us because we will have some exciting announcements to make. Um, I'm not at liberty to make them at this time, but you should know it's killing me not to because I would <laughs> love to. Um, so please stay tuned because we will have lots of options of different ways of, of getting involved and and supporting us in the near future. I love it. So our guest has been Elizabeth Smart. How do I say your last name, the Scottish accent? Just Gilmore. Just Gilmore. The, the O-U-R doesn't change the way you say it, eh? The O-U-R doesn't change. That's so good. Elizabeth Smart, Gilmore. Let me put you on the spot for one final statement. The Professor Randy Powell, she was famous for coining that, that speech title, Last Lecture, of all the things you've taught us to remind us about how to survive and how to be strong and how to be resilient. We love you, Elizabeth. We honor you. We'll all support you. What's your last lecture? What's your one final message to the world, a consolidated message that you want your three children to understand more than anything that you want all of us to understand, survivors, those who are victims right now and change their mindset from victim mentality to resiliency? What's your final message, my friend? You deserve to be loved. Nothing anyone can do to you can change your worth and happiness is possible. Wow. I have nothing else to say. Tears in my eyes. Thank you so much, Elizabeth Smart. I I appreciate you beyond words and we will definitely connect in every way possible off air. So this is Dan Clark with the podcast Power Players. And yes, we've talked about passion and preparation and pursuit of that passion, but no one has gone through what Elizabeth has gone through and, res- and, and, and emerged a stronger advocate, a more beautiful, caring, compassionate leader than you, Elizabeth. And it's an honor to have you on my program. And as I always conclude, I just say, so finally decide to be a power player as Elizabeth Smart Gilmore is. And remember what she's been teaching us. The power play begins in you. So until next time, my friends, quantify your takeaway and go make a power play. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. God bless you. And thanks for your inspiration. Dan, thank you for having me. The views and opinions expressed on the Power Players podcast do not necessarily reflect those of KUTV or Sinclair Broadcast Group.